there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're an aspiring actor who wants to build a career in the field of theater, whether off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, regional theater, or perhaps television and film, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is an actress of stage and screen, as well as an audiophile earphones award-winning narrator who has narrated over 150 books in fiction and nonfiction. But before I introduce you to the talented Elizabeth Rogers, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays to give you an exclusive look into the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do, my friends. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Elizabeth Rogers, an actress and successful audiobook narrator living and working in New York City. After graduating from Princeton University, Elizabeth came to New York and completed a two-year program at William Esper Studio, where she studied with Maggie Flanagan. She's also studied extensively with Tim Phillips. Her audiobook narration training came from Robin Miles, who has also directed her in several productions, as has Paul Rubin. Elizabeth has recorded over 150 books for a multitude of publishers, including Audible, Blackstone, Brilliance, Hachette, Harper, and Recorded Books. Her onstage work, ranging from Shakespeare to children's theater, original and experimental theater, and corporate training events, has taken her everywhere from city center in the Big Apple to regional stages in New York. Illinois, California, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Virginia, Oklahoma, Georgia, Minnesota, and even Tanzania. Elizabeth also does corporate leadership training, and she is currently in rehearsal for Troilus and Cressida, as well as a workshop of a new musical that was written by a teenager called Farewell Chris Yee. Elizabeth, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Ready to go. Thanks, Andrea. Awesome. And we should let our listeners know that you also have two somewhat rambunctious cats that may or may <laughs> not decide to make an audio appearance with us exactly. during the course of this interview. So just be aware that there may be some crashes or meows or something like that. And it's not Elizabeth taking on yet another role. It is uh, <laughs> her two fur babies. I have to tell you, this has been such a fun interview to prepare for, Elizabeth. I yeah. have so enjoyed listening to your beautiful voice as you narrate a truly wide variety of books from lusty or suspense-filled thrillers to weight loss how-tos mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> and other nonfiction like 
The Girls, which for those who haven't heard of this, this is a book that was written about the sexual predator, Dr. Larry Nasser, who was the team doctor for the U.S. Women's Olympic Gymnastics team. Yes, that was a particularly difficult one to do, but felt very important. It was We had to stop fairly frequently during that book to just sort of get our bearings. I can only yeah. imagine. And in fact, my first question for you is, how do you prepare for a new project, a new book that you're going to narrate? Do you have a particular process that you put into place? Yes. Different narrators have different types of process. And it also depends on the material a little bit. Mm -hmm. But for example, for a, a beach read, what you would normally think of as an escapist adventure or thriller or mystery or something like that, especially if it's a series where I've been working, I have a, I have a couple of different series where I've been working with the same author's books for years. And so I know the characters already. I know where they come from. I know who they are. I know what they do. I know how they sound. And so there's less intensive preparation involved in working on that kind of a book. But a book where, especially in nonfiction, where there are names and or terms that are unfamiliar, for nonfiction, you have to get it right. If you're talking about real people, you need to pronounce their names correctly. There's a lot of research involved. So I will always, even when we're on a time crunch, which happens a lot, read the book through at least once before I go into the studio. You have to. And I make notes. I, I work with a wonderful app <laughs> on my iPad that's called I Annotate. Most of us use this, where you can notate PDFs. So I can highlight, I can make notes in the margins, I can tap a little recording into the margin. You can copy IPA pronunciation guide for a word right into the margin. You can type in the margin. You can basically draw all over it. And so I will read the book through and make notes, highlight anything that I don't know how to pronounce. I mark character, usually character initials in the margins when people are speaking, because frequently an author will write what they say first, and then they say, she said, or said the professor. So you don't know at the beginning of the sentence who it is who's speaking. So I mark for myself who's speaking in the margin at the beginning of each line of dialogue. And then I go through the book and do that. And then I go through and find all of the terms and words and phrases that I've highlighted and do research to try to find out how to properly pronounce them. Or if there's a character with an accent that I'm not familiar with, this is the hardest part for me. There are many people who are so facile with accents and with mimicking different types of voices. And that's part of what they bring to the job. That is not an expertise of mine. I am, I'm a storyteller, I'm an actor, but I'm not a mimic with a thousand different character voices in my back pocket. So I have to work really hard at adopting an accent. Some of them I have because I've either done them in theater roles or I've, I've worked on them very hard for other purposes. And that accent is sort of in my bag of tricks. But quite often, an author will throw something at you that you have no idea. I remember the first time I had to deal with South African, 
which is really hard. It and I, <laughs> I went to a friend of mine who is really good at accents. And I said, will you please record these lines for me with a South African accent? Because the only way I'm going to be able to do it is if I can listen to it in the studio and then imitate it. And I know a lot of other friends have done the same thing. I have a friend who he's a fluent French speaker. And I get a lot of books that have French and I never studied French. I studied Italian and German. So those accents and those pronunciations I'm very comfortable with. But French can be tricky sometimes. And so I go to my friend and he will go through it with me and we will record him saying the words so that I can then hit the little button in the margin and listen to him say the word so that I can then say it correctly in the studio. Depending on the book, it takes a lot of time. The research portion of it takes a great deal of time and concentration. So everybody asks me, so do you have to read the whole book before you go and start recording it? And I cannot imagine not doing it. I've heard horror stories about people getting to the end of the book and suddenly the villain is revealed to have a Russian accent. And it hasn't said so until the last five pages of the book. And you've been doing him with a British accent because you didn't finish reading the book before you started recording. Right. So I'm terrified of that sort of thing. So I'm pretty anal about making sure I go. I will also go through and actually search. You can search in this app. You can search for words like accent or dialect or British, Russian. You put the word in, you search the document for it to find out if the character has an accent before you even start. Terrific. So how long does something like that take? Not for the beach read that you've right, exactly. been in the middle of a series, but the new book. It really, really depends, again, on the density of it. I've been very lucky to have done just recently a series of books by Catherine Davis, who is a writer of literary fiction. I think she's still the head of the creative writing and literature department at Washington University in St. Louis. And her books are really challenging. They're really good, really beautifully written, but they're very challenging because they're sort of surreal and fabulistic. They're not linear in the way that they're written at all. And one of them that was about 14 hours long once it was recorded was one of the main characters was a Danish woman who wrote operas. So there was a huge amount of Italian and German because of the opera and the musical parts of the story. But there was a lot of Danish and there was a lot of sort of reference to composition and musical composition and musical terms. And I had somebody helping me with the research for that one, but it nevertheless, it took, I was, I was recording at night that book. And during the day I was transcribing because I didn't get the research until you know, we were all working sort of on a very last minute kind of deadline. And I got the research days before I started recording. So I would have to transcribe the research into the manuscript during the day. And then at night, I would go in and record it. So again, it really, really just depends on how difficult it is. There are many books that I've done that even very literary, very highbrow, I'll say books that haven't involved nearly as much research. But it's really almost impossible to pin down the time frame. And you just have to be prepared to look at the book, realize what is this going to take in terms of the research. And that's pretty easy to tell from the beginning from a cursory sort of read. And the producers and the publishers usually have a pretty good idea of how difficult it might be as well. And does the final paycheck 
reflect the level of difficulty <laughs> and the amount of research that the narrator is going to have to do? No. <laughs> Actually, I was just talking about this the other day. It's fascinating, but it seems as though the books that are the more dense and more interesting and more difficult and challenging are the ones that I get paid the least for and the ones that are the easiest and the kind of the ones that I know how to do it. You know, I open it up, I took a look at the first page and I know how this is going to go are the ones that I get paid more for. Isn't and that, that weird? I mean, well, it's because of how they sell it. These intellectual, literary, deep, difficult books don't sell at the level of the, the fluffy beach mysteries or the, the thrillers. They just don't. Mm. And so you get paid more for the books that are bigger sellers. <laughs> okay, go figure. No, I know. Go figure. <laughs> oh, man. So how do you decide on the accent or the voice you're going to present when it isn't obvious? Like it doesn't say that the person is Danish or Italian right, right. or whatever, because in some cases... As you explained in our Espresso Shots interview, and folks should check out the show notes for this episode to see if that episode has already dropped. That's where we get into how to break into audiobook narration. In some cases, you're taking on multiple characters. Oh, yeah. There are many different approaches. Every narrator has a different way of approaching a text. There are some people who don't do character voices or accents, or if they do, it's very, very minimum, and they just read the words and tell the story. And then there are others who are experts at mimicking, who have hundreds of different character voices in their back pockets who can just pull out an Irish or a Malaysian or, you know, who are very adept at very specific voices and accents. So those are sort of the two ends of the spectrum. I fall probably in the middle with that. My way of approaching it is I focus on telling the story and on acting the scenes, but not in a way that is so hard to describe. I don't do it in a like I would do it if I were on stage playing the part or if I were on film playing the part. The primary focus being clarity and telling the story. And so if a character is in tears, depending on the scene and depending on how it's written, I might be approaching that. But if I were on stage doing that, playing that role, I would be in tears. It's more of a suggestion. And as far as the accents go, I try to do that as well, although it's much harder to do a suggestion of an accent than it is to do a very heavy kind of caricature cartoony accent if it's not one that you're really, really familiar with or really comfortable with. It's hard to do a light touch, but that's what I try to do. I don't necessarily choose to place an accent on a character unless it is specified in the text, because that's just adding work for myself that is really not necessary. The elevation of the writing, if it's really, if it's really eloquent, beautiful writing, I don't want to take away from the words on the page by imposing something on it that isn't there. So I will tend to do less in that direction with work of literary fiction. And certainly with nonfiction, you don't play the characters in nonfiction, you report it, you don't, there's, again, it depends, there are some places where it might be, if the dialect is kind of written in, then you're obligated to. But I don't place a character voice on somebody who's speaking in a nonfiction book. I will do sort of pitch variations and age variations, but that's my default. And I'll give a 
flavor of a Southern accent or something like that. Or I'll try to give a little bit of a, just a little bit of a suggestion rather than going heavily into a Russian accent or a whatever it might be. Unless it's something that is called for in the text. If it says that he has an almost undistinguishable, impossible to understand what he's saying because of his Russian accent, then I will do my best to do something. But it's hard to do a realistic one. And especially yeah. if it's a he. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So well, that's, that's another challenge that it's very hard not to pay attention to reviews. I try to dismiss them. But women doing men's voices, it's very difficult. And it's very difficult for men to do women's voices. Although I think on some level, that's, I don't know, I'm not a man, so I don't know. But I know that men have use of, of a falsetto that they can use, whereas women don't really have that kind of break in their voices to be able to fully inhabit a male voice. There are some people who do, some women who do, who have exceptionally deep voices. But well, I will say just from a listener's perspective, giving you feedback right here, mm-hmm. I listened to one book that you narrated in which you did have a male voice and I didn't find it at all jarring. It seemed very natural and you have a strong voice and I think you have a depth to your voice that makes it easy to accept a male voice. Right. Well, that has taken years and years and years of work. <laughs> okay. And the I other have one no that doubt. I've, the other one I have trouble with is kids' voices because, yeah, there, again, there are people who sort of are expert at that. I don't do a lot of young adult books or children's books. I've done some, but because, again, it, well, we talked about it in the other interview about sort of finding where you fit, finding what your niche is. And children's voices are not my niche. <laughs> What Sometimes I have to do that. Yeah. What would you say your niche is? Strong female protagonists in sort of intense situations or deep situations or difficult situations. I tend to get really dark stuff and it's always a very strong, powerful woman dealing with enormous odds or terrible emotional circumstances or obstacles preventing her from saving her child's life or something like that. Grief, I deal with a lot. The book that you mentioned, The Girls, dealing with very difficult circumstances to comprehend and to talk about. So I don't, I don't get the light, fluffy stuff. Darn I once had a, I want, no, I know. Sometimes I really wish I could. And I once actually had a conversation with one of my producers about it. And he said, The thing is that there's lots of light, fluffy stuff out there, and there are lots of narrators who are capable of doing that, particularly younger narrators. And he said, you're smart, you can handle the dense, difficult, complicated, challenging stuff, and you can handle the darker, deeper, heavier stuff without it sounding cigarette-tinged. And I thought, wow. That's really interesting. I'd never thought about it in those terms before. And that was, he really helped me to just sort of accept that this is where I fit. This is what I'm good at. It's what we call genre fiction, literary genre fiction, the mysteries and the dark stuff. That's where I fit. And it's not necessarily where I want to be all the time, but it's where I, where I live. It's my niche. Well, um, speaking of where you live, <laughs> <laughs> could you take us into a typical day for you, Elizabeth. And I suppose I should say a typical day maybe where you are 
preparing to mm-hmm. read a new project and a typical day where you are, in fact, in the studio because you studio. told us in the espresso shots, you don't do the readings from home. So where you're in the studio doing the reading, what would we be seeing and hearing on those two different days if we were <laughs> a fly on the wall? Or a cat on my lap. Or a cat um, on your lap. <laughs> my days are not typical. I'm a night owl, so I tend to work later in the day. And I often, it, it, depending on what it is I'm working on, if it's something that is not demanding a great deal of my focus, if I've already done the initial read through and I'm working on the research, sometimes I'll have like a basketball game on television or a baseball game on television sort of in the background as I'm going through and looking up words and things like that. But I spend a lot of time sitting in my armchair in my living room, reading and making notes and interspersed with everyday tasks like checking my email and paying my bills and cleaning my house and feeding myself. But there isn't a typical day in terms of that per se. Again, it depends on the book. But I get up, I do whatever I need to do, feed my cats, make my coffee, feed myself, and then I sit and I read and I make notes and do all the stuff that I was talking about earlier. I wish I were a little more disciplined than I am, but I make it work. (laughs) I wish that I could say I get up at 8.30 in the morning and I do my exercises and I have my coffee and then I sit down and I do X amount of work and then I have lunch and then I do this and then I do that. I don't, I am not very good about introducing a regimented schedule, but I also know that about myself and it's been many, many, many years. And so I know that the way I do it works for me and it wouldn't necessarily work for others. I know writers who say you have to treat it like a nine to five job where they get up and they go into the place where they write and they write all morning and then they have lunch and then they go back and they write all afternoon and then they have dinner. It's much less structured for me, not necessarily because I think that's the best way to do it, but that's just the way that I am. When I'm in the studio, again, it depends on which producer, publisher I'm working with. But for example, this last series of books, I've been doing several series of books for Blackstone and they have a studio here in the city. And the engineer that I work with there and my engineer director that I work with there is also not a morning person. So she says, we'll schedule whatever we can start whenever you like. She has some people who start at nine. She has some people who start at noon. I'll usually go in at 10 or 11 because frankly, vocally, it's very challenging to work first thing in the morning vocally. I'm sure there are people who don't have trouble with it. But for me, I need some time to sort of wake up. My vocal cords need to wake up and I need to warm up. And so I usually start around 10 or 11, which is typical of the studios in New York. And then I'll do my sort of warm up on the way to the subway. People think I'm crazy because I walk down the street blowing my lips. But you're in New York. I yeah, think nobody, most I mean, it's funny. Like, nobody, oh, big deal. Yeah. No, exactly. It's like, they just look at me like, oh God, what is she doing? And then keep walking. So just to warm up my tongue and get things sort of moving. There are people who have much, much more intricate warm-ups than I do. I'm, I'm very lucky. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm, I have been singing all of my life. I don't have to do a lot of crazy exercises and stuff to get myself ready to go. So I'll go into the studio and we will get our water and tea. And I usually have an apple because especially a tart apple or a green apple, if you start to get mouth noises, 
These are the things you have to think about. If you start to get noises, lip smacking, or there's like clicking that comes along with saliva noises in your mouth, or if your mouth gets dry. So I always have a lip balm in the studio with me and an apple to take a bite of or just to sort of sink your teeth into because it makes you salivate. It induces saliva. So if you are getting clicky mouth noises and you take a bite of a tart apple, it will help the noises to go away. I also have, (laughs) although I've been told I'm not the worst, I, I sometimes have stomach noises. And so you often have to sort of have a pillow across your lap and always be listening for that and being aware that, oh, there goes my stomach. So we need to go back to the beginning of the sentence or paragraph. I don't always eat a big lunch on a normal day, but in the studio, I have to eat lunch because my stomach will start to make howling, growling noises. But then after lunch, you're dealing with digestive noises and the phlegm that is produced by eating anything for me. It doesn't matter what I eat. So this is the down and dirty, gross stuff that poor engineers have to listen to. The bodily noises that come out of people in the studio. Can, yes, but I I'm think sure that's so important to yeah. raise because these are things we wouldn't think about if somebody is doing, let's say, a radio show or even for me doing a podcast. I'm only talking for an hour or right. less than an hour because my guest is speaking. How long are you sitting in the chair when you get in there at 10 or 11? A typical session is usually from 10 to 4, 10 to 5, with breaks, obviously, and with a lunch break. But generally, six to seven hours in the studio, which is a lot of talking. And it is absolutely wearing. And again, I think there's a difference just vocally between men and women, because I know people who can go for more hours than that. And I know people who can do five hours straight of eight hours a day. I have done it, and I can do it but it is very difficult. It's really exhausting. And you begin to feel it vocally and you begin to hear it vocally. So I like to do six or seven hours, two or three days, and then take a day off and then come back for another two or three days. I just finished a huge collection of short stories. that's about 20 hours long. And we were doing it over the holidays. So it worked out because it's short stories. It worked out well because I could do one day here and then another day here and then plug in around the holidays. Normally, I don't like to do that because you lose the flow of the story. So I like to do a book sort of in one piece, like without working on two things at the same time, although sometimes you have to. Right. Because just like anything, if you're acting... right? If you're on stage acting a role, getting in and out of character takes quite a bit of focus and Mm -hmm. energy. Yeah, exactly. And even at the end of the day, even you finish a day of recording and the next morning you come in, I have to listen to how I finished the day before so that I can try to match the tone and the energy when I'm beginning the next day. So that isn't like obvious, like, oh, she's getting tired. She's getting tired. Oh, that must have been the end of a day of recording. And the next day you start with all this bright, perky energy. And it's like, you need to keep in mind the overall flow, the overall arc of the book, of the story, whatever it might be, and try to keep that flow going. And that's a lot harder when it's interrupted. But it's also, you know, you need to schedule time off for your voice. And for your brain. It's very, as you say, it's very, very intense focus. So Elizabeth, I'm wondering, what advice do you have for our young listeners who may want to get into this career, acting writ large, but specifically into narration of audiobooks? How should they go about starting? And 
Is there a particular type or tenor of voice that is particularly well suited to this career? Oh, that's a really good question. It's funny. I, <laughs> I don't know per se, because I spend time with mostly with myself in the studio. I don't hear a lot of other voices. But from what I understand, it's pretty wide ranging. I think there is certainly the desire for some range, mellifluousness, what have you. Women with sort of deep husky voices tend to fare pretty well. But then there are also, I know, women who have very young sounding voices who work all the time. A friend of mine, again, it's it's a matter of what niche you're, where you sort of fall into vocally and I think acting wise. I have a friend who basically gets, I think she put it angsty adolescence or angsty teenagers <laughs> is what she always gets cast as. And that has everything to do with her vocal quality. So I don't think it's necessarily limiting. It's just, again, a matter of figuring out where you fit what your vocal quality is right for. And that's not necessarily something that you can tell until you start to record, until you actually get on tape, as we used to say, it's not tape anymore, but and have the ability to hear yourself and have somebody else who knows more about it listen to you. My advice as far as getting into it, breaking into it, is absolutely taking a class or classes with somebody who is reputable, specifically having to do with audiobooks, because voiceover technique and audiobook narration technique are very different things. I do not do commercial voiceovers. I know many people who do both, but I'm not one of them. I focus on audiobook narration, which is a, a very different animal. So as far as breaking into audiobooks or acting writ large, classes, 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 study, I think, whether it's in school or whether it's in the evenings after work when you're out of school and in where, wherever you land city-wise and after your day job. And you will have to have a day job. You will have to have many day jobs. It, certainly it happens that people break out, they get cast immediately in something big and then you know their career is off and running. But that is a very rare occurrence. Most people who are working actors are what I call journeyman actors are plodding along one step in front of the other, taking the next job, doing the next audition, sending out the next email, asking to be seen for something or reminding a casting director that you exist or asking for a chance, selling yourself, promoting yourself. That's the bulk of the work. And But working in a class is going to be the most valuable kind of information in the beginning to sort of tell you where you fit, if you fit, if it's something for you. And there are lots of people who are experts at being able to teach that and help people with that. I'm not one of them, but I have I have many acquaintances who teach and teach really well and coach whom I could connect. You know, I can give you links and things like that to, uh, to these people. That if you would were. be great. Yeah. I mean, are there some names that you want to just rattle off here? And yeah. I can look them up and hyperlink to them. Absolutely. I would say for a beginner, check out the unions. If, if you're a member of the union, that's great. They often have open workshops that you can sign up for and go. And frequently, there'll be somebody who's doing a just sort of doing an evening workshop at the union, listening to people and giving them some feedback. There are classes all over the city as far as 
commercial voiceover, voiceover technique, et cetera, et cetera. As far as audiobook technique, I can, I first and foremost recommend my mentor, Robin Miles, who teaches fairly specific, very detailed technique. And she also coaches, but it's a very specific technique for sort of mapping it out, mapping out your process. For beginners who aren't sure whether it's something that they would be able to do or good vocally fit for, there's a young woman named Jamie Matler, who is an engineer, a producer, a director, and a narrator herself. And she does coaching. And she's really wonderful. I think she'd be a, a great place to start. There is a guy named Johnny Heller, who also sort of does introductory workshops, and he does them all over the country. And Paul Rubin would be, I think, more for somebody who's already gotten their foot in the door, but looking to really, really dig in deep and really improve and really expand their skills and capabilities. Paul Rubin, Paul Allen Rubin is a brilliant teacher and director. Wonderful. Thank you. I will search them and hyperlink to them in show notes. Just very quickly, is this a career track that someone who is obviously as talented as you are can make a good living at? And I'm talking specifically about audiobook narration. Would you be comfortable giving our listeners just a rough idea, kind of a ballpark idea of the kind of compensation they might be able to command when they were starting out? What are we talking about in terms of a book and the compensation, whether it be nonfiction or fiction? It doesn't make any difference in terms of nonfiction or fiction. The determining factor is the length of the book, which is has to do with word count, not necessarily page count, because fonts are different. It is possible to make a decent living. I don't know very many people who are making a really good living at it without doing other things. Most of us are what I would call journeymen. There are celebrities who dip their toes into the audiobook world from time to time, but I don't personally know anybody who's making buckets of money in this career. I'm doing fine. I'm making a living as a performer, which is something that is very rare to be able to say. Not very many people can say that. But for a young person who's thinking about paying off college loans or that, what could they expect? That's, uh, it's tough. You're definitely going to have to have a day job. The compensation differs by publisher. The contracts are different with each one. And Quite often in the beginning, you would be breaking in as a non-union actor, which means you can do a few books as a non-union narrator, but then you'd have to join the union, which costs money, but it also would then command you a little bit more money in terms of your paycheck. But the basic level, I believe, is I really don't know with the non-union. I think there are some pretty exploitative contracts out there, but the basic union minimums are somewhere in the $125 per finished hour. And so if you have a book that's 10 hours long, that's going to be $1,250. In terms of all of the time that it takes to prepare and to record a book like that, it depends on the density of the book. And the amount that you get paid does not go up based on how difficult the book is. It's just how much time you have recorded, you're not going to make a lot of money. (laughs) Clearly. Yeah. Clearly. So I think that's work really hard and do a lot of books to make a decent paycheck. Absolutely. And I think that's just 
a reality check for mm-hmm. yes. young people. Yeah. And as far as acting writ large, especially theater, I don't think it's possible to make a living in the theater anymore unless you are somehow a member of a regional theater company where you are cast in every play that they do, which doesn't really happen so much anymore. That used to be the world, but it's not anymore. There are very few sort of repertory companies left. And so you have to kind of be a jack of all trades. You have to be able to have hold down multiple jobs and have focus on a lot of different directions. But I also think that that's part of what makes you better at doing what we do. I worked for 10 years in catering. I taught English as a second language for several years and tutored foreign students in English who were preparing for the test of English as a foreign language. I have, I worked in an office. I worked as a house manager for a concert hall. I ushered, I've worked as a background actor, extra work, we call it in film and television. Kind of just got to take what pays you. It's like supporting an addiction, supporting the addiction of performing. You have to have other jobs to support that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's quite a quite an image there. So let's flash back mm-hmm. to when you were an undergrad. You got your BA in English literature and in theater at yes. Princeton. <laughs> yes. It was a fairly new program within the English department that allowed you to focus on theater and dance. So it was I was an English major, but with a concentration in theater and dance. Got it. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree, Elizabeth, when you graduated? By the time I graduated, yes. When I went to Princeton, I was not thinking that I was going to be an actor because I knew that I always would, I would always be an actor, but I figured it would probably be as an avocation and not a vocation. But I knew I was probably going to be an English major, and I assumed that I would probably go into teaching. I did a lot of theater. I was a singer, and I did a lot of theater in school. And it was towards the end of my junior year that I sort of realized that the choice had been made without really consulting me. I realized that I had to try it. I had to go for it, that there was nothing else that was going to give me even a fraction of the satisfaction that acting did, and which was terrifying. (laughs) So I sort of started on that course. I think really, I started focusing my mind on that course during senior year. And then the year after I graduated, I sort of took a year, I stayed in town, I worked at McCarter Theater in the box office, and I got myself put together to apply for to grad schools. That, that's what I spent that year doing. And then I didn't get in to any grad schools. So I just sort of took the plunge and moved into New York and got an internship at an avant-garde performing arts center and started doing progressive avant-garde theater with a group of other people who I knew who had graduated. And we sort of got together and started doing it in New York on our own and then started with the odd jobs here and there to support it. Well, I know because I've had the advantage of looking at your very (laughs) extensive resume, or I should say sort of CV that lists all the various performances you've had and the trainings and the special skills. And among the special skills that you have acquired beyond knowing how to take on a character, how to embody that character and act on stage. Some of those skills include various dialects, whether it be standard British, Cockney, Irish, German, Southern Minnesota, which I love. Uh, (laughs) And then all the, the singing that you've done. 
and you have acquired the skills of stage combat, unarmed and rapier, mm-hmm. and period dance. I mean, very specifically, 17th and 19th century styles. <laughs> How important is it, Elizabeth, for aspiring actors, for aspiring narrators to learn these types of additional skills? Do you think it makes you more employable? Some of them, yes. The period dance skills and the stage combat skills came from specific classes that I was taking while I was studying in a very focused way, studying acting for about a four-year period. And Those things certainly would make you more employable if you're seeking out work doing classical theater, if you're seeking work as a Shakespearean actor or doing period theater of any kind. It helps with the character work because there's a physicality that comes along with period work that is very different from contemporary or modern theater. In terms of the audiobooks, I don't think that's necessarily made any difference other than posture and everything in the studio, which does help because it can get very wearing to be sitting and not able to really move much because it makes noise. The accents have mostly come from working on plays. So my I haven't studied dialects per se in a classroom, but I have had to study them in playing a role. And those are the ones that then become kind of anchored in me that are easily accessible because I've had to work very, very hard on them in order to play a role. And I've, people have many different methods for studying dialect or accents. And the ones that I've found the most helpful or the one that I've found the most helpful is to watch movies, is to watch other actors doing these specific dialects and Mm. just listening to it and listening and finding the musicality of it and finding, picking one or two elements of the accent that you can really latch onto that will ground it. And then with work, it becomes more and more specific and more and more authentic. Oh, that's wonderful advice. I love the idea of listening to different accents to find the musicality of it because mm-hmm. there is yeah. a rhythm to oh, absolutely. the way yeah. that we speak in different cultures and different countries. And I think that's just a, a wonderful bit of advice as a potential way to approach learning these different dialects. So I have two final time for coffee questions. And actually, this next question, I try to ask both of them. I try to ask all my guests, but I think I'm going to change it a bit for you because I usually ask if you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled. Mm -hmm. But I, I have to imagine that most of your professional life has been a series of struggles. Yes. Yes. So I guess my question should be, how you have persevered throughout your professional life, knowing that it is a series of challenges in order to do what you love doing, and that is being an actor, and as a result, being a journeyman, as you have described Mm -hmm. it, how you have found a way to build a meaningful life in which you are filling a lot of your days with things that you may not love, but you need to do in order to do what you really love, which is the acting. Okay. That's a lot. I 
in my recent life, in my the last few years, there are a lot of struggles. As you said, there have been fairly constant, just being a freelancer means fairly constant struggle, particularly with the notion of uncertainty, with fear. And I think that being a lifelong freelancer gives you a very, an intimate relationship with fear and uncertainty. And that on some level was deepened and at the same time kind of opened up and changed. Now I'm going to get really personal here. Two and a half years ago, my husband died and he had been struggling with a number of health issues for the majority of the time that we were together, but so for at least a decade. And so I was the breadwinner. So there was a lot of anxiety that sort of surrounded work and having to get work and having to pay. So I I quit auditioning for regional theater when he was initially diagnosed because getting a regional theater job meant I had to go out of town for two, sometimes three months at a time. And I didn't feel that I could do that with him sick. And so I couldn't, I couldn't leave him. And so fortunately, that's when the audiobook work really started to ramp up. It was a absolutely just purely serendipitous timing that I was able to really, really dive into the audiobook work. And that's when that really became my, my focus in my career and my money making job. And with his death, it, I don't know, in some ways it may, it's funny because I've actually had so much more work in some ways since he died than I did before he died. And part of it is that I've maybe relaxed a little bit. It's a very difficult balance because you have to put yourself out there. You have to work to get the work, but you also have to trust that the work is going to be there. It's a terrifying thing to look at the calendar and not know what's going to be happening in February. Right now, I'm booked solid through the first week of February, but after that, I've got nothing. And that can be very anxiety-provoking, fear-inducing, but... And this is true on all levels. Theater, it's true. Everybody I know, they get to an end of a contract or to the the end of a book or the end of a job. And and the feeling is, I'm never going to work again. I'm never going to work again. And of course, that's not true. But it's very hard to sort of convince your your heart and your soul and and your fear of that. And so I've been really, really living with and thinking about and becoming very intimate with the idea of being comfortable with uncertainty, which is, it goes very much against our nature. But you're going to get up in the morning and life is going to happen and you don't know what the day is going to bring, but you just have to sort of surrender yourself to trusting that it's going to be okay. And in some ways, I feel as though this journey that I've had with uncertainty, with fear, with anxiety, that in some ways I've, I find myself at a place where I feel like I have an advantage over people who have full-time jobs or have got a job out of college and have been working in the same industry, 9 to 5, 365 for 30 years. And suddenly either they are facing some sort of uncertainty, like they're going out of business or retirement even, or, or downsizing or a career change. And it is absolutely immobilizing and I have so many friends who are in this place of career change, or is it time for me to quit? Or what am I going to do next? And I'm 50 something and I, this is all I know. And I don't know where I'm going that I have an advantage because I just have had to keep bouncing back every time there's rejection on a daily basis. And 
you just have to stop taking it personally or I'll take it personally and experience it and go through that and then move on to the next one and trust that you're going to be taken care of and that work, the work you've created a foundation and it's going to support you. I don't feel as I've expressed that as well as I wanted to, but it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you honest. And I think it keeps you young. Wow. Well, thank you (laughs) so much for sharing that. And I am so sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you. And I have to say, listening to you summarize that, and frankly, I think you did an incredibly eloquent job, I am struck by a number of qualities that you have that are truly the secret sauce, I think, to for young people to cultivate. Mm-hmm. And that is grit, mental fortitude, mental strength, mm-hmm. courage, mm-hmm. because that is the pathway to a meaningful life, to yeah. have the courage to stand on the edge of the diving board. Yeah. And to jump. Right. Not having no idea. Having no idea. Like, you know, am I going to belly flop or is the water deep enough that I'm (laughs) trusting that you're going to have what it takes to to not just survive whatever happens at the bottom of the, the diving board, but that you're you're going to thrive and grow from and whatever. But the other quality that I would add to your list is empathy especially as an actor but i think just as a human being in general that what what gives life to everything that i do is the depth of experience and the depth of imagination and the depth of empathy yeah and frankly and i hope this doesn't come across as mercenary when i say this but the pain that mm-hmm. we experience in our lives and some of it is profound as you have experienced. I too have experienced tremendous loss. It becomes an opportunity if you face it and if you feel it, allow yourself to feel it and don't numb yourself to it. Exactly. It becomes an opportunity for growth. And I can only imagine as an actor that it provides you with the material that you need to express yeah a range my re- of emotions my reserves are very deep <laughs> yes. right and so basically the best really the best advice to anybody who wants to be a performer in the expressive sense is to just to live to experience life to allow yourself to actually experience everything because that will grow your your imagination which is our where our reserves come from. That's what we do. We imagine ourselves in the situation that our characters find themselves in. And we have to be able to access the true feelings that go along with imagining those circumstances. And that's where empathy comes in. You don't have to have experienced great loss to imagine what it would feel like to experience great loss. But you can't do that if you close yourself off to it. Absolutely. So, Final time for coffee question, <laughs> If you could go back to Princeton and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, 
What advice would you give yourself? Oh my God, it's such a hard question. Princeton has changed. So if I were to go back now, there were a whole, there are a whole lot of other things that I would study that, that weren't available when I was there. Like what? But Well, oh, there are just so many more areas of study available that weren't there. So many more theater companies doing theater on campus. There used to be two or three opportunities, and now there are dozens. I was in an acapella singing group. I wouldn't change a moment of that. But now there are, I think, I really honestly don't remember the numbers, but there are now at least twice as many as there were when I was there. There are more students, more people from all over the world. Wow, it's really hard to say. My advice, I don't know that there's a lot that I would change other than maybe being aware of the fact that it's the work. It's, you know, just do lots of theater, do lots of performing, singing, dancing, whatever it is, but that I learned, obviously, at a place like Princeton, I learned an enormous amount of invaluable information, skills, groundwork in the classroom. But in some ways, I look back and realize that the most valuable education I got was at the dinner table with other students and sort of expanding my my worldview by connecting with people who are different from me and not just staying within the the realm of people who were sort of in my world and came from the same background and were studying the same things and and concerned with the same things but that the deepest education i got was was sitting at the dinner table with students from you know, every different possible background that you can imagine so to really consciously take advantage of that, I guess, because you're never going to be in that kind of situation and be able to be that kind of a sponge really ever again. I also would say to myself, don't give up on trying to get into an MFA program. I applied once the year after college, and then I did many years later, I did again, but only to a couple of schools. And that's purely practical, just because having that degree then would allow me to teach on the college level. And there are advantages that come along with graduating from an MFA program, including being seen by agents and and having representation and having a leg up, a real leg up at the beginning that I didn't have. But I wouldn't change a lot, really. You wouldn't change what you did after you graduated, would you? Nope. And that's nope. the I mean, best. sometimes when I'm feeling cynical, I feel like I would, but but no, really, I wouldn't. I mean, that's validation right there. <laughs> and I get I, all of I the get, ups and downs. Yeah. Yeah. And I get massive validation. Well, I believe life is like a roller coaster ride, and you can't really experience the thrill of the highs without the lows. I mean, a roller coaster wouldn't wouldn't be as exciting if it didn't have really, really high highs and really low lows. But I also get affirmation and validation every time I go back to reunions and people who are multimillionaires or who own companies or who, you know, have big families and live in gorgeous houses. Every time they're always like, they're so excited to hear that I'm still performing and they're so inspired by that, I guess. And that helps me keep going. You know, when people say, oh my God, it's so great that you're still acting and and good for you. And I wish, you know, I wish I had followed some other course. There are plenty of people who, who would go back and change things. Oh, a hundred percent, Elizabeth. A hundred percent. I just want to 
thank you from the bottom of my coffee cup, which is almost empty at this point, for your incredible generosity of spirit and wisdom and just the personal stories that you have brought into this conversation, because those are the ones that really stick with people. And I just hope that you will encourage the young people who invariably reach out to you all the time (laughs) for career advice to say, I gave a marathon time for coffee interview that you should really (laughs) listen to (laughs) because it's pretty much all there. I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. If you want to, dear listeners, learn how to break into this really tough profession, both of acting and specifically of audiobook narration, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Elizabeth's Espresso Shots interview has already dropped. But to hear Elizabeth at any time, you just need to Google her name, check out the show notes for how she spells it, but she spells Elizabeth with an S and Roger's D-G-R-O-D-G-E-R-S. You can Google her name for the books that she has narrated, and she is an audiophile earphones award-winning narrator. And trust me, you are in for a treat. (laughs) Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you, Andrea. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.